From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we delve into the invisible wounds caused by war and its aftermath when we look at the concept of moral injury with Professor Rita Nakashima-Brock, co-founder of the Bright Divinity School program on soul repair. We talk about strategies and steps to heal those who feel that they have been shattered at the level of their conscience. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Reverend Dr. Rita Nakashima Brock. Dr. Brock is research professor and director of the Soul Repair Center at Bright Divinity School in Fort Worth, Texas. With Gabriella Latini, she co-wrote the book Soul Repair, Recovering from Moral Injury After War, published by Beacon Press in 2012. Dr. Brock travels the country speaking and writing on the concept of moral injury and its repair. Professor Rita Nakashima-Brock, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm wondering if we could start out by, by sort of getting a definition of what moral injury is. Sure. Uh, moral injury is what happens to your sense of being a good and decent person when you're in circumstances that cause you to do things, witness things, or fail to do things that violate your core moral foundations. So war is an obvious experience where uh, lots of terrible things happen, much of it legal and authorized, but it still violates most of the kind of values people learn growing up, that you don't kill people and you don't do these things that become authorized in war. And some people handle that fine um, and can come to terms with it. Other people really feel terrible and um, suffer a, an inner anguish that is really, really hard to come to terms with without a lot of support and friends and people who will go with you on a very long journey to recovery. It doesn't just happen in war. It can happen in natural disasters. It can happen in the kind of jobs where you have to make life-or-death decisions and you won't know the outcome till the decision is made. It's not something distinctive to war, but war has its own features in um, injuring people morally. So when we're talking about this concept of moral injury, is this really just another word for post-traumatic stress disorder? Is that what we're talking about here? No, no. And that's been part of the problem with veterans of war is that the VA clinical community realized five years ago that while they were getting better at trying to find different treatments for PTSD, there, were, there was something else wrong, and they couldn't quite put their finger on it, but the treatments for PTSD weren't necessarily working. And that's when they got together and wrote this, a group of them wrote this essay on moral injury, which they said was distinctive from PTSD, but often occurs with it, so it's easy to get them confused. And the quickest way I can explain it is to say that 
PTSD is something that happens to you. It's a disaster or a, a violence or some terrible thing that happens to you that triggers a very intense fear reaction. And what happens is that if it's intense enough or repeated enough, your fear systems sort of go in hyperdrive. So most of the responses of, or the symptoms of PTSD have to do with things that have to do with stress and fear. Moral injury is a, a kind of affliction of conscience that requires memory and thinking because you're making moral judgments about yourself or about the conditions you have been in. And some of the feelings may look like PTSD, but they're based on moral judgments rather than on terror. And so moral injury is really something going on inside of you that you did or witnessed or failed to do. So I would say it's an act of personal agency in some form, a sense that you power in a way that makes you feel terrible about who you are as a human being. What I'm hearing you saying is that moral injury is not a physiological or a psychological effect. It has to do with the the moral status of the person, the, the way that the person understands their relationship to society and their relationship to other human beings socially. Am I hearing you correctly? Uh, I'm sort of. <laughs> it is true that PTSD is related to the flooding of your system with stress hormones. And those interfere with memory. They interfere with your ability to calm yourself down. And they can even interfere with the thinking brain. Uh, you can lose tissue, actually, in your cortex because your fear systems are overactivated. And it's insomnia, dissociative episodes where you relive an experience, but you can't remember it exactly. Those things are all part of the symptom profile for PTSD. And those things can be helped in different ways, and there are different modalities, drugs, meditation, other, uh, you know, um, eye movement therapy. There are ways to help people get memory back uh, and learn to calm down. Moral injury, you can have similar feelings that you can have with PTSD, like anger or a depression. You can even have trouble sleeping because uh, what happened that you remember haunts you um, and it's hard to sleep. But moral injury has this thinking component of an evaluation of a judgment. It says you're, you're saying to yourself, you shouldn't have done this thing or you did this thing and now you're not a good person anymore. So you can feel depressed. You can feel angry. It can look something like PTSD. I think probably there are physiological changes also that come with thinking bad things about yourself. So I wouldn't want to create too hard a mind-body split with moral injury because I think what we think about actually does affect us physically, but but moral injury, you don't, you can't take a pill and make it go away. You can't stop judging yourself by having some therapeutic treatment process. You really actually have to go through a long, sustained thinking, rethinking, remembering, mulling, reflection process. So, I think the way I would describe it is that uh, PTSD is an emotional, psychological response to terrorizing conditions. Moral injury is a reflective spiritual process. If you're just joining us, we're speaking to Dr. Rita Nakashima-Brock. We're speaking today about the concept of moral injury and its healing, which she and others refer to as soul repair. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt.
this term, moral injury, is attributed to a Marine veteran and a person who's described as both a soldier and a philosopher, Camilio Mac Bica. And I'm wondering if you might take a moment and tell us about Mac Bica and, and how he developed this concept of moral injury. First, I have to say that I think that's an error in our book, Saul here. We had thought that Mac Bica had used the term in some of his war journals and poetry that he wrote when he was a Marine captain in Vietnam. It's very powerful poetry about his own sense of having become the killing and lost himself and his soul in some ways in his war experience. And uh, when we double-checked it after the book got published because someone asked us about it, it turns out that it was probably used for the first time by Jonathan Shea, a VA psychiatrist, in his book, Achilles in Vietnam. And so um, Jonathan Shea is on our, uh, the board of the Cell Repair Center for a lot of reasons, including his amazing work with Vietnam veterans. But he is probably the person who first put those two words, moral and injury, together in a term. But in his book, he describes it as a form of PTSD. I don't think he would necessarily do that today exactly, but uh, at the time, the only sort of framework the VA was working with was PTSD, and he saw it as especially the kind of outrage, even what he would call berserk rage, that a lot of Vietnam veterans felt about the failure of their government and the failure of their own officers in the field. That's helpful, and thank you for that clarification. It sounds like this has become a more common term, but have you encountered difficulty in having people understand these distinctions about moral injury when you've been dealing both with combat veterans and others that have encountered traumatic situations, but then also with those that might be treating them, the psychologists and the others? Has there been a difficulty in understanding the concept? I don't think it's very difficult. Um, You can actually just do it with brain diagrams showing what parts of the brain tend to be uh, affected by PTSD and what parts of the brain actually need restoring before you can even have a memory and think about what happened to you. So I don't know that it's all that difficult to explain the difference, and we have plenty of VA clinicians and psychiatrists and people who come to our, our conferences that we do to learn more about moral injury itself because psychological training doesn't teach you what to do if someone says, I think God hates me which is a theological statement, actually. And so, so I think that it's not that hard to explain the difference. What we have found, especially with veterans, is when you, you just start into this explaining what moral injury is before you even talk about how it's different from PTSD, you can see a light go on in their, in their eyes, and they'll say, oh, Yeah, I've been diagnosed with PTSD, but that's not my problem. Moral injury is my problem. That's what's really bothering me. So we found that veterans themselves intuitively get it. It's not that hard to explain to them. You're listening to Things Not Seen, and we're speaking today with the Reverend Dr. Rita Nakashima-Brock, Research Professor of Theology and Culture and Founding Co-Director of the Soul Repair Center at Bright Divinity School in Texas. We're discussing the concept of moral injury and how consciences might be repaired after war. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. 
We're speaking today with Dr. Rita Nakashima-Brock. Professor Brock is director of the Soul Repair Center at Bright Divinity School in Texas, and we're speaking today about the concept of moral injury and its healing. And so what I'm hearing is that part of your work is to equip people who have suffered moral injury with a vocabulary to talk about it. Is, is that a, a fair assessment? That is. It's, it's also not just veterans. I think um, the struggles that they have with moral injury are completely understandable as normal human responses to extremity, to really difficult, morally ambiguous conditions. I think the problem is that when they come back to civilian society, most of us are so clueless, so inept at trying to understand what happened to them and unable to hear them, really, that they get isolated and they get treated as some kind of special needs population when, in fact, I think what their experience is is quite normal. It's just that we don't uh, really understand it and we don't know how to listen to what they're saying and they... And we haven't earned the right to be trustworthy enough for them to speak to us. So our mission is not doing treatment because um, I don't think the veterans are so much the problem as the rest of us. So when you say that the problem is the rest of us, it's not just a matter of equipping those that have been in combat situations with a new vocabulary to talk about their experience. But what I'm hearing you saying is that we also need to find ways as a society to equip ourselves to hear that experience in a more profound way. Is that correct? I think that's right. I think uh, the society itself has a tendency to create uh, veterans as a special class of people in two directions. One is, oh, there are a bunch of heroes, wounded warriors and heroes, and there are people that are to be admired for what they've done. Or they're head cases. They're, like, really messed up, and they need the VA to help them. And while it's true that PTSD benefits from treatment, uh, anyone under the circumstances of war probably would have some form of PTSD um, and probably some form of moral injury. So to, cr- to sort of siphon them off as if they were some kind of different kind of human being from the rest of us is very isolating. And, uh, and that's what makes it difficult to talk about what happened is People say, well, thank you and call you a hero. How are you going to talk about something that you feel horrible about and that you don't think you're a hero at all? How do do you say that to somebody who's admiring you and wanting you to feel better because they think that it helps to call you a hero? So I think that uh, we tend to stereotype veterans rather than regard them as a human being just like the rest of us, and that that creates this isolation where they don't really want to talk about it. I'm fascinated by this. So in, in feminist discourse, you, you sometimes hear the critique that women are classified either as Madonna or whore, that there's a polarity there that doesn't allow the real lived experience of women to shine through, but instead these polarized stereotypes are used for descriptions of the feminine. In what I'm hearing you saying, there's a similar stereotyped polarity in our descriptions of those that have gone to war, they're either heroes or they're head cases. And it creates a very difficult way of talking about the, the actual lived experience of the individual. Am I hearing that correctly? That's right. That's exactly what I'm saying. I think we, first of all, I don't know any normal human being who finds it simple or easy to talk to a stranger about the worst thing that ever happened to them. You talk about those things to your friends. You talk about those things 
to people who you have found trustworthy and will not judge you or condemn you, but really want to understand you. And those are secrets and anguish and terrible things that I think we have to earn the right to hear. That means being trustworthy friends. Uh, It means not sitting there thinking about, well, what do you think about this and what's your opinion of this person, but really receiving in a heartfelt, open-hearted way a person who is who is in a state of anguish, uh, in a, is suffering something that is that if you're human, I think you could understand, and listening to that, letting that person enter your own heart, and that process is a way of sharing a burden with someone that can help them struggle with it, which they cannot do in isolation. The thing I know about moral injury is it's not a problem you can fix by yourself. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today to Dr. Rita Nakashima Brock. Professor Brock is the director of the Soul Repair Center at Bright Divinity School in Texas. We're speaking today about the concept of moral injury and its healing, which she and others refer to as soul repair. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Part of what we're touching on in our conversation is this tension between the myths of the military character and the realities of military experience. Uh, When I was a child, I was part of a military family, and I have memories of going out with my friends with toy guns and playing war. And I think that I valorized and idealized what I thought my father did. And as I grew older, I began to realize that there were some things that my father engaged in when he was in the Vietnam War that left severe scars on him. And I'm wondering about this tension between the myths of of the military character and the realities of military experience. In your work, Dr. Brock, how have you experienced the clash and the friction between those those two pieces of military psyche? Well, I also grew up in a military family. Uh, My birth father, whom I didn't grow up with and didn't know till I was 33, actually served in Korea, which is when he left my mother and me in Japan. And she didn't hear from him for two years. So she actually met my stepfather and married him in Japan. And he had been a veteran of World War II and was career military. So I grew up in an enlisted man's family in the U.S. Army, and he served two two tours in Vietnam as a medic. When he came home from his second tour, he was very, very different from the father I grew up with. And I didn't really understand that, but I was estranged from him for eight years until he died. And understanding moral injury now, I have a sense of what he must have gone through that changed him so much when he came home. I think partly because I'm female, I didn't play with guns. We had never had guns in the house. It was just not part of the culture. Even in my military family, I remember having to launder and starch and iron my dad's fatigues and things like that. So I think there's a gender split in growing up in some ways in the military. But So I didn't either think of the people in the military as heroes or as villains or any of those in, in those ways. I just knew that, you know, my mother had to cope alone when my father deployed and she learned to do things that she'd never had to do before and all of the rest of us adapted and worried about him. When I went to college, it's the first time I encountered the politics of the war of Vietnam and 
uh, and I was pretty quickly persuaded that it was a bad war. I, I saw what it had done to my father, and I don't know that that led me to any kind of generalization, but I, I began to understand something about the politics of the war. This was 1968. It had become unpopular. Uh, so I, I actually entered college and became an anti-war activist pretty quickly, and that has defined my adult life in ways that I think made me drift further and further away from having grown up in a military family and had that experience. So coming back to that with this work on moral injury, it closes a certain kind of circle in my life where I'm much more aware of what it was like to grow up with someone who was a a veteran of war and also what I didn't understand that I wish I had understood when I was 16 and he came home from Vietnam. The rest of us adapted and worried about him was what you just said a moment ago. And it, it, it makes me think of my my own experience in, in 12-step recovery. There's language around Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon that alcoholism is a family disease and that there are family dynamics involved in this. And when you use the phrase that the rest of us adapted and worried about him, I guess my question would be, is moral injury an individual disease, or is it a family disease? Is it a family dynamic that affects people beyond the person who has been injured? Um, I'd start by saying I don't think moral injury is a disease. I don't think it's a disorder. I don't think it's a sickness. I think it's a normal human response to extremity. So, yes, families also are facing extremity. They're facing the potential death of people in their, that they love, and they may uh, feel guilt for not paying enough attention to the danger. There, there, there are all kinds of ways in which families themselves uh, may struggle with moral questions about what to do and feel like they made bad choices or they didn't do enough to make sure the person was okay. My friend Pamela, whose son served in um, Iraq, she hardly slept at all. She said she watched television day and night trying to see the bodies of people who were killed to make sure her son wasn't dead. She just was in incredible amount of stress the whole time and probably feels like that there should have been something she could have done, that, and like get him out or something. Anyway, so she, she struggled a lot with her own sense of inadequacy and guilt around um, having her son deploy. And I think families can have those experiences. Uh, it's also... Sometimes that families change because of deployments, just as when people go off to war and are dramatically sometimes changed by their experience, families also change. And, uh, and some of that is, is that their own sense of they're not doing enough or that they're doing bad, they made bad choices is also part of the experience of families. They may, I think one of the... Um, worst kinds of moral injury a family can experience is wishing the person hadn't come home. And sometimes that happens. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the Reverend Dr. Rita Nakashima Brock. She's a professor at Bright Divinity School in Texas and an expert on moral injury. Along with Dr. Gabriella Latini, she's co-author of the 2012 book, Soul Repair, Recovery from Moral Injury After War. We'll be back in a moment.
This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today to Dr. Rita Nakashima Brock. Professor Brock is the director of the Soul Repair Center at Bright Divinity School in Texas. We're speaking today about the concept of moral injury and its healing, which she and others refer to as soul repair. I truly appreciate uh, what you just did there, because when I made the characterization of moral injury as a disease, you corrected me. And I think that in that moment, uh, we demonstrated and modeled part of the, the larger problem that you're speaking about in this conversation. And that is, when we hear about things like moral injury, we may immediately reach for categories that, are, that we're used to. And so classifying a person who is experiencing moral injury as deficient or diseased that that's the easy low hanging fruit and that's maybe one of the things that our society does in that in that polarity between the hero and the head case that we talked about a moment ago and i so appreciate your willingness to say no it's not a disease there's a better language to use here and i i i wonder when you when you're engaged in this kind of dialogue with other people, that sounds like a very pastoral way of of approaching the problem. And and how has your training as a pastor helped to to really inform the way that you talk about this and inform people about this concept of moral injury? I'm not a pastor in a traditional sense. My um, status as a minister has to do with the work I'm doing as a theological educator and not as a a minister of a congregation. So my pastoral work has always been education. And um, in education, I think what I struggle with is trying to understand how other people are thinking about things um, in ways that limit what they can understand. And and I think that it's a common thing. It's It's not any particular single person's problem, but it's a common thing to um, have an idea of what's a normative person and then think anything outside that is diseased or problematic or deranged or a disorder, rather than trying to understand the full range of human experience and ways in which people's experiences change them. And so I I just think, from, from my own perspective, I don't know how I could think about somebody who had survived boot camp, which is no easy thing, survived boot camp and then gone into a war and managed to come back out alive and think that that I'm going to think of them as somebody diseased I'm going to heal. This is a person who's, who's undergone enormous testing and stress and has managed to come out alive. And not only could I learn something from that, perhaps, but also... Uh, how could I expect them not to be dramatically changed by that experience? And part of what happens in that experience is the change is that you might not like yourself very much, or you might have lost your sense of being a good or in a, you've lost your innocence. You've lost the person that went there, the person who came home. Um, I've heard so many vets that I don't even recognize the 18-year-old I was who went into the military thinking they were going to be a hero or they were going to defend their country, and now um, I've had this experience and I, I don't even know who that person is anymore. But these are, um, these are, no, these are normal experiences people have when, when um, they walk through hell, as it were. Normalizing that, saying, you know, this is, a, this is just 
what happens to people, we need to give them space to talk about it because the way you integrate that experience rather than have it control you is you have to be able to talk to people about it. You have to be able to process it. So we do public education to help people learn what the path to recovery might be and how we can be part of it. I appreciate your clarification that your ordination and your relationship to the pastorate has been uh, largely in an educational setting. Within the book, uh, Soul Repair, you follow uh, case studies of several different people that are connected to the military experience, both those that have gone to war themselves and those that have experienced others going to war as part of their families. And two of those people in particular, and you, you mentioned some others, but two that you follow throughout the thread of the book are both people that have been ordained to the pastorate. So Herm, who works as a, as a military chaplain, and Pamela, who is a minister in Atlanta. So my question, since you've been working closely with people who are more uh, directly in the traditional pastoral experience, what are seminaries doing to address this concept of moral injury? And are seminaries doing a good job right now in preparing pastors to deal with the concept of moral injury, or is this even a conversation that's happening at seminaries at all? Well, the term moral injury has only been uh, in the literature since the very end of 2009, so I think it's a little bit unfair to expect seminaries to suddenly have jumped on this and suddenly invented an educational program around it. Um, I, I do know that, that Pamela Leitze, the woman you were talking about, who's a United Methodist minister, teaches at Boston University Theological School, where she's a dean, and she and um, a theologian there named Shelley Rambo teach a regular course called War and the Human, and they deal a lot with trauma and moral injury in that course. I've even uh, Skyped in to do a lecture for that course on occasion. And they are actually teaching a shorter version of that course at our national conference in October um, in Kansas City at the end of October. Uh, so they, they have begun to do that at Boston University Theological School. I've talked to some of the faculty at Drew University Theological School that have been interested in the concept. I teach a regular intensive course here at Bright Divinity School. I've also taught it at Pacific School of Religion. We have had... Uh, for the past two years, the Soul Repair Center has uh, sponsored a think tank of 12 senior pastoral theologians in Islam, Judaism, and Christianity around the country at theological schools like ILIS in Denver, where I know a student who's doing a doctorate on moral injury. So, so we've had people, Eden Theological Seminary, San Francisco Theological Seminary, people in the think tank who are senior leaders in pastoral theology working on this, and most of them are either teaching a mini-course or giving a workshop at our conference in October that represents their work the past two years in looking at this moral injury piece. Uh, and one of them is um, Dr. Kristen Leslie, who's also a uh, minister. She's been working on military sexual trauma very intensively for the past three years. So there is, there is work on this being done, uh, but it's still really new, and... I would say that there's, I wouldn't say that there's like an extensive curriculum based on it yet at this point. There are increasing numbers of books and articles being written. If you go to our, our Soul Repair Center website, which is just soulrepair.org, and look under resources, you will see a list of essays 
published by year. And if you look at 2009, there's one essay, and then in 2010, there are a few more. And as each year moves forward, there are more and more resources being published on moral injury, a lot of it by the clinical community and the VA, but not entirely. Some of the pastoral theologians have also started to publish. So it's it's growing. We've been sponsoring some of that work and also benefiting from some of that work in other places. In your book, Soul Repair, you and Gabriella Latini write that veterans and others who struggle with moral injury are struggling to recover their lost sense of humanity, which they require to reintegrate into the human community. And you you write, there's no easy shortcut that can bring them home. And you go on to say that repair from moral injury begins with outward expressions of an intense moral struggle. And I'm wondering if if you could describe for our listeners the process of soul repair, both this outward struggle and this, this inward struggle that is going on. I think I, I forgot to mention in your question about the two in our book, Herm Kaiser, who was a military chaplain for 34 years. And I just wanted to, to say that I've learned a lot from him uh, about what military chaplains do to guard the humanity of people they serve. And Herm was an astonishing chaplain, I think, because he paid close attention to helping people hold on to their humanity under inhuman conditions. Can we talk about moral injury for members of the police force? Can we talk about moral injury for those that have lived in extreme poverty or extreme deprivation? Yeah, absolutely. The moral injury is a human experience. It's not unique to the military. There are plenty of people who work in professions like EMTs and medical caregivers and law enforcement and prison guards who uh, work under conditions that can be quite threatening and extreme. You can make a bad choice. You can cause harm you wish you hadn't caused. The problem is that our whole society is set up like a war zone. um, The courtroom is a win-lose proposition, and in order to win, you use all the kinds of things that people in wars use, deception, silence. Um, the, the point of winning a court case is not getting the truth, but it's winning. And so it makes it really hard in those kind of contexts for anything ambiguous to come up. It's, it's difficult, for example, for somebody in the medical profession who may feel terrible that they did something that was a, a huge mistake, uh, a misdiagnosis, a, bad, a mistake in the operating theater or whatever, um, and they cause harm to a patient. But their insurance company and their hospital, whatever, want they need to spin it in a way to protect the company. And so you can't then tell the truth. You, you can't then apologize, uh, which may be the thing you really need to do for your soul. So I think we, we also live within social structures and legal structures that are set up very adversarially. So uh, there's hardly ever space for... Of the restoration of a relationship that's been broken. We also set up oppressive conditions for people where they cannot make a good choice. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today to Dr. Rita Nakashima Brock. Professor Brock is the director of the Soul Repair Center at Bright Divinity School in Texas. We're speaking today about the concept of moral injury and its healing, which she and others refer to as soul repair. We'll be back in a moment.
We're speaking today about the concept of moral injury and its healing, which she and others refer to as soul repair. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. You mentioned earlier in this conversation that work on moral injury and and its understanding really began in earnest around 2009. And so it hasn't even been a decade that, 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 that the conversation and the work has been going on around this concept. But even in that short amount of time, I'm wondering if you could share with us how your work on moral injury has changed you. Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, there, there are a couple of ways I've been changed. Um, one is that I've just learned an enormous amount about what military chaplains do and how important they are uh, in the work that they do in the military, uh, as well as understanding a lot more about military culture and the fine people who serve in the military. I have also changed my mind about the draft. During the Vietnam years, everybody I knew was worried about the draft and the lottery number they had. And so a lot of us worked really, really hard to try to get rid of the draft. And I've now concluded that that's been a mistake and that we really need a universal draft. And if you don't want to serve in the military, then there ought to be a way for you to be required to serve the common good in some way, because I think that's probably an important responsibility of citizenship. So that's a way I've been changed. And my own relationship to my father has changed. He died a long time ago, 1976. And I was angry with him for the last eight years of his life because he was so different when he came home from Vietnam. So I was sad that he died, but I don't know that I spent a lot of time thinking about him or missing him because I was so angry with him. And doing this work on moral injury has helped me understand that the father I grew up with that I loved was still there when he came home. I just didn't understand how much he'd been changed by the experience in Vietnam. And I've come to miss him a lot. I've come to wish he'd lived longer and that we could have somehow restored some aspect of our relationship. And I don't know that I would have said five years ago that I miss my father, but I do. That's, that's the struggle in the recovery process from moral injury is to help somebody reclaim their humanity. And by that, I mean their capacity to be open, to share feelings, to be vulnerable, and to be unafraid to talk about the worst things that ever happened to them. And that's, that's a long process. But it takes some expression. It may not be in words. It may be in art. Uh, it may be in music. It's some way to externalize that inner anguish, that sense of I am not a good person. I don't deserve to live. I feel terrible. The good people died. I'm the one who survived. That makes me a bad person because I did bad things to survive. All of those things have to somehow find external expression because once they're outside, you can begin to think and reflect and look at them. When they're inside and they're not being expressed, they haunt you. They have this control over you. And 
the externalization, whether it's talking to a friend, talking to a group, writing a memoir, lots of people write. They call it writing your way back home, that that writing process is part of the beginnings of the recovery process. But to recover requires a community of people who care about you, who begin to understand your humanity and help you hold on to it, um, that you can make a contribution to so you know your life is worth something to other people. That's the process of recovery. When you work on these questions of moral injury, you're working on things that are taking you to the depths of an individual's most traumatic moments. And it also, as we've talked about in the conversation, opens us up to the failures of society to be able to hear and listen and reintegrate individuals who've been traumatized into a moral structure. When you're working with all of these very negative aspects of this concept of moral injury, what continues to give you hope? I don't experience the work I do on moral injury as experiencing negative things. Um, What I experience when I'm talking to a veteran I care about um, and they're telling me things that they struggle with, I experience that as an enormous gift that that they trust me they're willing to be present and that I can maybe help a little bit to carry this awful burden they've been carrying. And there's something to me heartening about the, the struggle of conscience in terribly ambiguous and awful conditions, um, the struggle with regret, the struggle with shame, that this is a powerful witness to the intractability of moral conscience, that that the worst things that human beings have invented to wreck a conscience can't wreck it. It can wreck a person, it can wreck a life, but that part of the wrecking is that the conscience will not let them go. And I find that extraordinarily heartening. But I've done work like this for a long time in my life. I used to do domestic violence and rape crisis work. I wrote a book on prostitution in 1996 with my friend Susan Thistlethwaite in which we walked the streets of Shinjuku and Bangkok and Chicago and Los Angeles. And we it's pretty awful stuff that you find there, the sort of strange and awful things that human beings are willing to can do to each other, and yet um, the quality of smartness and resilience we found in people who walked, who who were sex workers, was really heartening. It's a strange thing to say, I guess, but I I guess I've never felt like whatever happens to human beings is strange to me. That I that these these places of extremity can also. be extraordinarily illuminating about the um, quality of humanity that can endure in the face of these awful, awful things. So I don't find it, 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 it's hard, it's not not easy to go through these things, but it it doesn't uh, feel negative or defeating to me. It is what heartens my spirit and um, makes me appreciate the value of being a human being. 
Well, Professor Rita Nakashima Brock, just on a personal level, I, I very much appreciate the work that you've been doing around this issue, and I've so enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. The Reverend Dr. Rita Nakashima Brock is Research Professor of Theology and Culture and Founding Director of the Soul Repair Center at Bright Divinity School. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ at their Navy Pier Studios overlooking Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Mary Gaffney engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badnock. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's Facebook.com slash Things Not Seen Radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at ThingsNotSeenRadio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.